Amen. Good morning. Glad you're with us. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Uh, and as we kind of crest this year and begin the next one, I just want to make you aware that our Christmas series is almost over, obviously. And then, as we start the new year, we're going to get practical. We're going to be where the rubber meets the road, about as practical as I ever get. We're going to talk about faith, family, finances. Three-week series. We're going to try and get ready for the new year in some of these core places. So please, um, not only join us for it, but be thinking about it. Get ready for it. New Year's resolutions? Sure. More, let's think about the real sort of nitty-gritty of those very important things. Let's evaluate it together. Take steps towards health. One of the very exciting pieces of that, we're going to be launching a class on finances. I don't know if you've done that before where you've kind of walked through some percentages and thought about what are we saving, what are we spending where, how do we maybe be a little wiser with it. I know Rachel and I could really use that, something to look forward to. Here's a question. I'm going to read you a verse, and it's a verse Jesus spoke. It's from him. And I want you to think about whether or not it connects really like flush in your mind with church. You ready? Here's what it says. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You heard David speak this verse just a second ago. But when he said it and you were thinking about it and then he read that more explicit translation was in my complete happiness. Did you think to yourself, yeah, definitely. Did you come to Hope Church this morning anticipating wild joy? Think about that for a second. People, my brother right now is flying to Orlando to go to Disney World. He is not looking forward to it. But (laughs) if you're a kid or one of those adults that are really into Disney, when you walk through those gates, what are you anticipating? All right, adults, you're anticipating like sore feet, too much money, you're anticipating. But for a child who walks through those doors, you're anticipating wild joy. Because what is Disney? Disney is the whatest place on earth. It's not. It's not. <laughs> right? David did a good job helping us think about that because he took his family too. And it's, it's, I mean, it's fine. But it's not. But that's how they bill it, and in that first moment, you definitely feel it, right? Now, did you come to Hope Church this morning anticipating wild joy? Anybody? Please don't respond. Most of the stuff is supposed to be rhetorical. And then I push the envelope a little bit, and so you're like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to respond. Please, just sit there. But think about it. Think about it. Did you? Wild joy. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said your joy would be complete. It would be full. That cup you have, the maximum amount of joy that you can feel, fill, feel, yeah. This is my accent. I said to my daughter, oh, we'll get you some Tylenol. She said, well, what's Tylenol? Tylenol. Stop it. I'm your father. I'll say it how I want to. Okay. 
the cup that you can fill of joy, how much joy can you feel, that cup, in Jesus' words, is going to be full. Is that what you expect from church? Because most of the time, it never even crosses your radar, does it? I mean, the music's fantastic. The people you get to hang out with, it's a good feeling. I'm seeing these people again. But are you anticipating wild, full joy? You should be. Jesus has come not only to invade our humanity, not only to invade our suffering. We talked about that. We're going to have a whole series on suffering in the new year. It's hard things to think about, lovely things to think about. He's come to invade our sin. We talked about that last week with Zacchaeus, that he didn't just come to reward those who are already killing it. He came to find those who are furthest from him. But he also came to invade our joy. And the way I want us to think about it is with the very first miracle that Jesus ever did. You ready? Let's read it together. We're going to be in John chapter 2. So feel free to turn or tap your way to John chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have them up on the screen for you. And we would love to gift you a copy of the scriptures in a modern English translation. We have excellent, excellent copies of the Greek that they wrote the New Testament in. And so when you're seeing these different translations of the English Bible, they're just going back to the Greek for the New Testament and the Hebrew for the Old Testament, and they're translating it into modern English. And if you don't speak King James English, then don't read King James Bible. I mean, you can read whatever you want to, but I, who got an English major, have never read a word of Shakespeare. Hello? Isn't that awful? It is. So for me, right over my head. I love a lot of our modern English translations. Sometimes you can find one that you're reading it and you say, wow, this is helping me to see a familiar story at a level I've maybe not felt before. This is helping me to understand something and maybe feel like I'm there when other times I've just sort of glanced through it and I didn't understand. And in John chapter 2 is one of these stories where you read it and you go, wow, that, that really happened. Let's read it real quick. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars of water there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water new. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of Jesus' signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
I want you to think for a moment about the fact that the first miracle Jesus ever does, the first miracle, how he's going to debut, he turned gallons and gallons of water into fantastic wine. What is going on? I want us to think about three substances in this story. And they're not good points. Usually you're supposed to take your points of your sermon and have them like be sentences that mean something. Instead, I want us to think about wine, water, and blood. And I want to create images that have meaning for us. So much so that when you encounter wine, water, and blood, you think back to what the Bible does with these pictures. And the reason that I want us to really get there is because the, the message that's being communicated here is a message of wild joy. Lots of people believe Christianity for lots of different reasons because there are many evidences of the Christian truth. You can get to it from lots of different directions because it's really true. So there's evidence laying in lots of different directions. Personally, I'm not a guy who's great with like dates. So a lot of historical arguments, I, I, I understand them, I'm appreciative of them, but they don't always land for me. Because I'm just not good at that kind of a thing. I'll tell you what does land for me though. One of the things that I find to be one of the most clear Proofs of Christianity on a day-to-day basis. Something that draws me back. Oftentimes when I sit up here to preach to you, because I have to say something so definitive, I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you're, you're saying something about the gospel to somebody else, you're sharing something about what you believe to be true. And C.S. Lewis said this, and it, it gave me a little bit of... Uh, relief, I guess, but he said, I've never been less sure of something than when I stood up to defend it. And the, what I think he means is that if you're going to stand up to defend something, you have to know the attack that's coming. You have to know the argument that's coming against. And, and honestly, if you have a little bit of empathy, a little bit of love, then the person who's saying their, their opposing viewpoint, there's a part of you that just that says, well, these, this person is very intelligent. This person is lovely. This person is somebody that I've seen to to show integrity. I don't know. Am I really so confident that this person who's who's probably smarter than me, am am I confident that my belief system's right and their belief system's not? How How do you maintain that certainty? Well, you maintain it by working on it. By going back to the facts, by going back to the truth, by having your faith be bolstered by things you can know. And the one that I go to most often because it's just so evident in my day-to-day life is the weight of desire. Meaning, how nothing in this world really works to fully give you joy. I feel it at Christmas almost in a painful degree. 
Because at Christmas, all the things that you're hoping for throughout the year to give you joy, they all come rest on one day or one week. You have music that's nostalgic. You have food that's fantastic. You get together with your family. And I don't know if you like your family or not, but oftentimes you think to yourself, like, oh, if I could just be around people that love me. You know, at the office, I'm getting kind of beat up, and I'm always on my guard. And and with this group of friends, you know, I don't really know where I stand, but with family, it's comfortable. Ah, you know, I've got that cat's in the cradle playing in my head. I don't see my kids a lot, but with with Christmas, now I'm going to really be with them. Family. Food. Presents. Some kind of spiritual thing that's supposed to kind of like sit over top of all of this. Now, finally, I'm going to be happy. And then you get to Christmas and you get through it and you got the presents and you feel full, you ate, and you're around your family. And even if it's fantastic, it never really works. And I experience this on a daily basis, where you can get the thing that you're hoping for, the thing that you want, and, oh, this is really going to hit the spot. This is really going to make my day. And then you get it, and it just sort of doesn't. Christmas, it's wonderful if you just make it what it is, but if you try to make it more than that, if you try to be the thing that you're, you're pinning your hopes on, it falls, doesn't it? Now, the food wasn't that good. It was actually kind of made me fat and the the family time wasn't great because we had this argument again and then the kids you know and the presents were too expensive i didn't get what i want what i got was great but not great as i thought it might be and you either can have the wisdom to say i need to stop going to this well because there's no water here or you can do what we mostly do which say well next year next year it'll be better See, there's this book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but in the Old Testament, there was this king, King David, and he was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And he had conquer after conqueror. He would beat up the enemies, and he would establish Israel, and he would bring wealth to the kingdom, and he would bring confidence to their borders. And the, just the kingdom under David swelled. Then you have his son, who is Solomon. And Solomon was even greater than David. He had even more wealth. He just continued to to see the productivity of Israel rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. And so much so, that as the king, he was not only the wealthiest person over this very wealthy kingdom, he was also, by God, divinely declared to be the wisest person in the world. And he writes this book where he says, I have gone to the top of every mountain. I've been to the top of the wealth mountain. I've been the richest guy in the world. I've been to the top of the, like, pleasure mountain. I've got more wives and concubines than you can count. I've been to the top of the wisdom mountain. I can perceive things. I get around these walls that other people just kind of knock into. I'm, I'm very, very wise, and I've gotten to the top of that mountain. I've gotten to the top of the success mountain. Not only is he just wealthy and wise, he actually did stuff. He did these great works. He built the temple and all of its beauty. And the Solomon Temple is this thing that's been unparalleled. And do you know what he said in the book of Ecclesiastes as he looked at all that success? Vanity. As you open it up, it says it over and over again. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does he mean by vanity? He means nothingness. That's another word that's helpful to look at in a couple of translations because they come at it from different angles. Nothingness. It doesn't work. 
You have been built with a desire that is way too big to be supported by any of those things. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you come away with a sorrow. Because what would it be to be so thirsty that all the water in the world couldn't quench your thirst? What would it mean to be so hungry that as much as you ate, you just eat and eat and eat and eat and you could never be full? What is it like that you live with a desire that is so massive, its girth so heavy that anything that you set it on, it crushes? I'm a big fella. I always have to think about seats. Is that seat going to hold me? And I'll wiggle a little bit before I sit down. You think about materials, you think about construction. This stool, why do I like this stool? Because you can stand on this stool. Boy, I can throw my weight at it and I don't have to worry about it. But you take the weight of your desire and you set it down on chairs that can never hold it, that just eventually crumble. And you can be wise and say, this chair won't work. Or you can be foolish and say, well, maybe if I just get more successful, better food healthier family, more money. Do you know what Solomon says? Who got to the top? It's just chasing after wind. It's meaningless. You've been built with a desire that's too big. Why? Because you've been built with a desire that can fit God. He built you. So you can look at it and say, well, well, how sorrowful would it be to live in a world where nothing can actually satisfy me? And then you realize the other side of it. How amazing to be given a desire so big that I can embrace God. Because that's what he's telling you. When we think about the wine, what I want you to think about is worldly pleasure. Because for some of us, it's literal wine. We're just really into strong drink. That's not my game. But for some of you, you've had that as a thing that you like. And for some of you, you've gone way too far with it. And it's become alcoholism. It's become something that's controlled you. The wine that Jesus created, the wine that they drank in that time, would have been alcoholic, but it would have been tempered with water. They drank wine that was more like our beer. And even like Utah beer. You know? Like it's even more low. Utah beers, like I think it's beer. You know, I, I, that would be more. I mean, obviously it would work. They would eventually, if you keep drinking, you would get so drunk that they could give you poor wine and you couldn't tell the difference. But it wasn't like he was just creating a way for them to all get sloshed. He was giving them this symbol. The symbol at a wedding. He wasn't just giving them a good drink to go out and have that be their desire, which is really good wine. He was giving them a symbol at a wedding. And why is that so crucial? At Hope Church, we don't teach that there's marriage in heaven. We don't believe that there is. We believe that there's only one marriage in heaven, which is the marriage of the Lamb, or Jesus, and the church. And the reason that that's so important is because the illustration of a marriage is about as close as we're going to get to understanding what heaven is like. Where finally he and we are united forever. 
And at the wine of this celebration, Jesus is helping them understand what this this ultimate wedding that's coming and this ultimate celebration that he's beginning in some way at the beginning of his ministry. And the reason that I think we can take more meaning from it is because all throughout the New Testament it talks about this wedding, but also in this very passage, it says in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus never did a sign. Jesus never did a miracle just to flex. He never did anything just to show how impressive he is. He didn't have to. His miracles were always in order for you to understand something greater, in order for your faith to obtain something greater, that God is a healer, that God is a provider, and that he will be our groom. Over and over again, Jesus uses illustrations of the kingdom coming as a wedding, uh, a wedding procession that is coming. When John the Baptist is finishing up his ministry, he talks about how Jesus is the bride, uh, the bridegroom. He's the groom, and we are the bride. It says in John chapter three, so just the next chapter over. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ. There was some confusion about that. John was always very clear. He is not the Christ. Jesus is. So what is John? I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride. That's the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Even John the Baptist, on that side, he was killed. John the Baptist was killed by Herod even before Jesus goes to the cross. So he's just seeing this as prophecy, but he even understands that his, this wedding that's coming about. So what is the wine? The wine is a signal. It's pointing us towards the connection between us and God. How terrible would that marriage be? If you look back on your wedding day and you're just mostly happy, with the food. How, how awful would your marriage be if you look back on your wedding day and what you were most happy about was the cake? The cake's fine, but the cake isn't the point. The point is her. The wine at this celebration, of course it's going to be divine, but the wine's not the point. The point is him. And he's invading our joy in order to put himself right into the center of it. Because unless he's at the center of it, that joy cannot be full. Are you understanding? He's saying, it's got to be me. And yet, that wine comes from water. And I want us to think about this because the sign is the transition. It's the movement from one thing to another. It goes to wine, but it starts as water. Water in these giant stone jars used for the Jewish rites of cleansing. In the Mosaic law, the the law that governed the people of Israel before the time of Jesus, they had all of these rules about how they were to clean themselves. They would take water and they would be washing themselves all the time. They're washing their hands. They're ceremonially doing it and they're like actually doing it. And they're washing their head and they're washing their feet. They're cleaning themselves. But again, as you read through the Gospels over and over again, as it starts to really sink in what they're saying, you understand that there's something more that's coming. Something greater that's coming. The water and the cleansing that goes on with that water is only cleaning so much. 
See, in the Old Testament, God gave this law in order for the people to understand that God is holy and that we are sinful and that there's got to be something that happens if we're going to be in his presence. There's got to be something that mediates. And the most clear picture of that was the sacrifices that went on. But the daily reminder of that was this cleansing that's always going on. And you're washing your hands, but you're realizing every time you do it that I have to keep doing it. And it's not just that your hands are getting dirty, it's that there's something dirty in your hands. That the water is not going far enough. And to get at it, to understand it, I want you to think about this interaction between Jesus and his mom in verses 3 through 5. Because the water becomes the blood. The water becomes the blood. John the Baptist is saying that. He's saying, I baptize you with water, but Jesus, who's mightier than I, is coming. Strap of whose handle I'm not worthy to untie. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I baptize you with water, but there's one who's coming that's going to baptize you with more. What? What? What is he talking about? When Jesus is speaking with his mother, his mother comes up to Jesus and says they have no wine. Now, at this point in the story, it's probable that Joseph is already dead that he's passed away, and that Mary is a widow, and as a widow in a culture where women are not equal to men, and men have to do all the the providing and protecting and all the stuff that they do in leadership, now Mary is really dependent on Jesus. He's the firstborn, and he's Jesus. (laughs) So if you've got to depend on somebody, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was pretty dependable. Jesus is now not just Mary's like Jesus, like he's our Jesus. He was also her firstborn son now as a widow. And she's got a problem. Apparently she has some level of um, responsibility at this wedding. And she says to Jesus, they run out of wine. And then Jesus responds to his mother by saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? And the first time you read that, it's hilarious. Can you imagine saying that to your mother? Ben, the trash is getting full. Woman, what has that to do with me? And then you duck. (laughs) Because whatever she's holding, right? You would never say that to your mother. Your mother? And the reason that Jesus is doing that is, is multiple... But I think primarily he's helping her understand that that he is not any longer just what he was to her. When he says woman, it's not the way that we would say woman. It's actually, it's, it's him in a very polite way creating distance. It might be a way that a, a, a fancy person would say madam. They're being polite, but they're creating distance. Some parts of the country, the way you say ma'am, ma'am. You're trying to be polite, but you're creating some distance. What Jesus is doing, he's being polite, but he's creating some distance. And he's saying, that world, just wedding and logistics, that, that's not, that doesn't have to do with me. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And the way the Gospels are written, it's intended for you when you get to the end to start over again. As you get to the end of John, you realize that the Gospels thesis statement, which usually if you do your little five paragraph essay, you put your thesis in the first paragraph. No, in John, it's at the very end. Why? Because he intends you to read it and go, oh, and then start over and read it again. When Jesus says, my hour, my hour, what is he talking about? He only ever in scripture when he says his hour means his death. And as he's thinking about his 
hour what is to come. That's when he then goes about this miracle. Because him giving to them wine is similar to another time later in the book of uh, uh, later in the Gospels, towards the end of Jesus' life, where the Last Supper, the, the time when he's meeting his disciples right before he gets arrested and then crucified, and he gives them this thing that they're supposed to do. We do it as the Lord's Supper here at Hope Church. We use grape juice, not wine. But we're remembering in that moment what Jesus is giving for us. He's he's giving them this cup of wine and as they're drinking it, he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. I give this to you to do in remembrance of me. Not just of him, but of specifics of what he's come to do. Of how he's come to give his body and his blood to, to take that separation between God and us, God and his holiness and us and our sinfulness and bring us together. And in that moment of the wedding, Jesus, there's this hesitation on Jesus' part in order for him to, to complete this miracle. And it's not just because he's thinking about water and wine. It's because he's thinking about the hurdle that he has to go over in order to cleanse his bride for that great wedding feast of the Lamb. If you want to understand the joy of knowing Christ, you have to understand the love that Christ has for you. We say fully known, fully loved. David did a fantastic job of saying that. How clearly. Jesus fully knows you. And there's part of you like, duh. The Bible talks about how he knows the number of hairs on your head. Yeah. But he also knows what you did last night. Also, he knows what you thought just now. And knowing you fully, he went to die for you, showing that he loves you fully in order to give you that wild joy of knowing him forever. <laughs> Do you have that? Do you have that? So I, I, I preach this stuff so often and I think that the Christians are like, yeah, I hope these non-Christians are hearing this. Christians, do you have this? If I walk through the halls of Hope Church and I talk to the people who have been here for a while and say that they believe it, do I see in your face those wrinkles around your face because you smile so much, because the joy of the Lord has filled you? Or do I see people who are, yeah, well, you know, here again. Huh, let's get this over with. When we say to you that we're going to do this for the orphans, we're going to do this for people that are all around the world that don't have access to the gospel, is there a part of you that's like, hey, Okay, I guess we can put some money towards that. Or are you so maddeningly filled with joy that you can't wait for the opportunity to do something big? Do you know this? And again, if you're somebody who's new to this argument, to this thought, to this opportunity, have you evaluated it from this perspective? You have to think of whether or not it's true. And most people are asking that question. But most people haven't asked, is it good? And while I'm going to give you a resounding yes to the question of whether or not it's true, I also want you to really understand that it's good. It's something to be desired for itself. That he will make you 
glad. We sing that hymn, in sin and error pining, that we're pining, always wanting, 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 because sin and error are never going to deliver what they promise. But he will. Have you received him? Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray that as we, as we observe this gift that you're giving to us with its perfect wrapping, with its sublime bow, I pray that we would open it. That <laughs> we would open up this gift that you've given us of life through your Son. I pray that we would enjoy it. And that all the sidetracks that the enemy tries to do to pull us away, all the sin that we're still playing with that gets in the way, all the pornography, all of the adultery, all of the pride, all of the, I'm going to now use something else to give me joy, would just get muted. That you would overcome it with a greater joy, the joy of knowing you. I pray that your people would be overwhelmed by that joy. And I pray that the joy that we have would be the light that shines out into the world, drawing all men to yourself. I pray that you would do this, Lord, this Christmas season, for your glory and for our good. In the name we pray. Amen.